Welcome to In The Spotlight. This is a podcast brought to you by the Guild of HR Professionals in association with Lace Partners. Welcome to the Guild for the HR Professionals Spotlight Series, our regular podcast. Joined this evening with, or this afternoon even, with Annette, my normal co-host. Annette, hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. We're all bemoaning the weather today. It's not uh, the best uh, of places, but a great time to record a podcast, I think. Perfect end to the day, I think. Perfect end to the day. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, another one to our new series where we're discussing with thought leaders in the marketplace some of the, the really pressing items on people's agendas right now and some of the big topics of the moment. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about diversity today, diversity and inclusion. So shall I take it from there, Aaron, and introduce Kate? This is Kate. That Head. would be fantastic, please. Kate's our guest today. Now, I have to admit that I've known Kate for some time. Kate, am I going to embarrass us and rem- try and remember now how long it is? I think it's 20 years. Is that right? I think it's probably just under because I remember Centre Parks and my daughter learning to ride a bike because she felt shamed by your boys who were slightly younger than her. <laughs> oh, that's right. We survived to Centre Parks at one point in time, didn't we? That's We did. Right. I'd forgotten about that. So um, Kate and I met a long time ago and Kate, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and share all your different guises that you've had because I met you when you were an executive recruiter in the HR space a long time ago, but you have evolved in so many ways since then. Well, I think that's largely down to age, um, if I'm honest. Yeah, happy to introduce myself and happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for the opportunity to share some um, insight with fellow HR professionals. That's a great opportunity for me. So my background, goodness me, where do I start? So I'm a Mancunian, as you will all probably have already picked up. That's a very core part of who I am and my identity. And after a career in HR, my leaving job in a big HR job was head of HR for Manchester City Council, which was apparently quite a big job to hold at 27, but it didn't seem it at the time. And since then, really, I've had a career in, as you say, uh, in executive recruitment and recruitment and obviously the last 20 years specifically around diversity and inclusion, although that lens of recruitment tends to be the thread through my career. The kind of drivers for that are around the fact that I just believe, and I was, I was saying this and I've chatted to both of you separately beforehand, that I just believe in the what I call the golden nuggets that surround us in the world. And I've kind of given myself this remit that organisations that we work with, if a golden nugget touches them in any way, they don't miss it by some of the barriers um, that are inadvertently there for talent to come into an organisation. So that's kind of what drives me. I'm always really surprised as to where it's got me because doing something you're passionate about for a living is a pretty big privilege, to be fair. But that's gone from 
you know, me thinking this would be a great thing to do and, and advising and working with organizations such as yourself at Ford back in the day. So now, you know, we, we're probably one of the largest and most established diversity consultancies, certainly in the UK and Europe and, and, and increasingly in North America and the wider globe. And we have a, a very big team now and we have a great brand with lots of awards and we're very proud to be uh, providing the inclusion standard for the Lloyds market. We provide the inclusion standard for Highways England and HS2. And our job really is setting standards, making people realise what it, what they can aspire to be. But I think the space that I sit in personally is around the practicalities of making change happen. So that's what drives me to keep recreating and innovating new solutions, really. There's loads more to tell. I'm, you know, I'm on the Cabinet Office Advisory Panel. I'm on the Civil Service Diversity Leadership Task Force. I have no idea how I got to be recognised to do that kind of stuff, but it still feels an enormous privilege to be doing that. And um, yeah, I, I just love what I do. And there's loads more, but I'm sure you're going to ask me some questions. And Kate, I know I've said this to you before, but it has been a real pleasure for me to see you grow and develop your business and that passion around it. But I'm also incredibly proud of you as well. And I've said this to you a few times. Just look back at what you've achieved, but also the difference you've made to a lot of people and organisations. So a huge, you know, kudos for you. So big clap in the background. But we really wanted to ask you today you're seeing a lot out there you're seeing it cross cultures cross organization cross sector you know private sector government etc there must be some key themes coming out for you that we can all learn from what can you share with us about those key themes yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because, you know, over the last eight months, it's probably changed monthly because of the intensity of the, of the, socio, the societal change that we're living in and the economic change and as well as obviously what's happening in, in, in industry. Looking at today's space for us is diversity and inclusion experts and consultants. We, we've, we've been on a trajectory trajectory, it's easy for me to say, but not on a podcast apparently, of you know making the business case with HR professionals, helping to support them to engage with their leadership in the importance of being an inclusive organisation. To actually now the leadership are pushing the HR professionals to say, this is a game we feel a little bit behind on. And us alongside all fellow professionals in this sector are really, really seriously busy for all the right reasons, with the the impact of COVID on creating transformational change overnight with organisations, you know, such as Lloyd's, you know, flexible working five years ago when we started that journey. I don't think so. We've got to see them to be working with them and overnight closing the floor and I know I've used the wrong word there because I work in trading floors as well. The room, closing the room and you know, moving everybody out to home working, you know, literally overnight and not you know, dropping a breath really is extraordinary. So what that's meant to us and for HR professionals is they've got to react really quickly to this. And what I think I've seen the most of, or where I think the most pressure is to be fair on HR colleagues now, is they need to move very quickly from anything that feels processy mm-hmm. into impact and practice, because this isn't an opportunity to tick the box and say, we've got everybody on, you know, home working, they've got the kit. We've set up the coffee mornings. It's all lovely. Sickness absence has gone down. Funny that. But actually what they need to be doing now is be 
far more insightful about the well-being of their population, about the changing needs of that population, about the differing needs of that population, and about the enormous impact that remote working has on a number of colleague groups. And I think this is a real intellectual stretch for a lot of colleagues. So young people coming into jobs for the first time. I have a daughter. She's 22. She's a graduate. She's not going anywhere near corporate until next year because she doesn't want to join virtually. A lot of her cohort have done that. So how do they gain those networks? How do they have those quick coffees outside of meetings? You know, how do they understand the hidden rules that aren't as obvious on a, on a virtual platform? I think all of these behavioral issues that are a result of COVID beyond the pure well-being, tragedy, stress, anxiety, relentlessness of video conferencing, everything that everybody has to deal is a massive stretch for HR professionals. And my senior HR colleagues, friends and clients are beyond stretched at the moment with a genuine, genuine intent to keep everyone safe and happy and involved and, and that their careers and this next generation can be fulfilled despite this roadblock essentially that's been put in place and that's before we start talking about anti-racism so the pressure on hr professionals at the moment to up their game is 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 i've never seen it like this and i've been in hr for well over 30 years so i've, I've never seen this much pressure. and i welcome it because i think this profession should be intellectually stimulated i think it should be commercially and societally driven and i don't think it should be a profession that steps back and moves things around it needs to be far more proactive than that so it's tough at the moment but i think we will come out of it as a much stronger profession and i've got loads of questions but <laughs> one of them is um, what I think one of the advantages you've got, which you've always had, has been that you have done the role. You have been in HR as well as a advisor, provider services, etc. What do you think are the either the new skills or the skill existing skills that need to be honed now moving forward for the future of HR? Again, there's variants on a scale, aren't there, Annette? Um, in all of these things, it, it depends. There's, there's a contextual thing there as well. I think for many HR professionals, the skill requirement needs to be, and this could be biased, by the way, because I trained at Marks and Spencer's, as you probably know. So I, I trained through a very commercial route into HR. And I think that business acumen in HR professionals is no longer a nice to have. It should be an absolute given. And if you haven't got it, you need to get it or get out of the profession because we are part of running a business leading it strategically and supporting it. The other thing I think is, it has been the stretch that I've seen over the last decade, particularly, and I've willfully, you know, encouraged, is that HR should be an enabling function. It should never feel like a blocker or a function that says you can't. It has to be a mindset of enabling an organisation to fulfil its, its true potential. And that, I think, is what I'd really like to see in HR curriculum going forward. Yeah, no, totally agree. Aaron's dying to ask questions. I can always tell. <laughs> As always. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask a couple of quick questions because there's so many things we can talk about. You're right, and I'm, I'm very excited by all this. So the, uh, I suppose, coming back, come back to key themes in a second, I just want to pick up on this point you were just saying about the business acumen because I couldn't agree more in terms of the, the need for the profession to, to get that in. And I think it starts at grassroots level, I think, in our in our profession. And I don't know if you see that, but I, I've, I've worked with some of the 
universities has been been a guest speaker on a couple of their courses and i was surprised by how little time was spent on how to understand the business running function so much spent on international relations and organizational design but very little time spent on 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 that and i i'm just really interested to get your perspective on how do we how do you go about addressing that how do we go about addressing this gap as we bring people into the profession I think with many things, um, Aaron, it's about recognising the fact that the gap is there and that the need the need is required. I don't think actually it's unique to HR. I think that, that, that you know, there's a continuous cry from um, organisations that, that, you know, graduates, interns, apprenticeships, people, school leavers, joining them at whatever level post-16 aren't prepared for that need to influence Mm-hmm. and understand the other person's yeah. view and I think this this relates entirely to creating an inclusive organization which to me is the professionally mature future visionary organization mm-hmm. is that in, truly inclusive organization where you're aware of your leadership shadow and HR professionals can can you know have got the you know the ability to have those really honest conversations and if we've got HR professionals listening, the person who I'm about to mention will know that it's them. But I remember very vividly a turning point in one large organization's history when their then diversity director sat down with their CEO in, in, in an annual general meeting when that CEO had just praised the sales director for achievement and said, we don't always approve of their methods. However, he gets the job done and took that person to one side as an HR professional, not you know, not a peer of the CEO at all, not even C-suite, and said, I just want to mention, you've just given this whole organization permission to bully each other. That's what you've just done. And I think what we need to, to create via, and I think HR has a role, I think other business functions have a role as well, is open, honest dialogue. Yeah. But we don't have to say yes. We don't fear failure. We don't fear blame. And we don't fear making mistakes. And we can actually say to somebody, I'm not comfortable with that or I don't understand that so explain it to me more and I also think in our it's really we had this conversation very recently internally I've just said what I was doing at 27 and one of my colleagues was doing a very similar job at a very similar age and and chastised me because we've got a couple of people who joined us as interns and and they've they've gone on to be development consultants now consultants in their uh, mid-20s and they're absolutely awesome individuals and as a risk-averse individual I was I, I, I will not openly say I was blocking their development by not letting them have a go mm-hmm. and so once we'd taken that rain off and they started to have a go then we can see you know that potential being realized I think as an HR profession we need to recognize that Teaching people skills in terms of employee relations or development or training needs analysis, whatever it might be, we need that because we need that credibility to be able to do our job well from a skills perspective. But to land it, the other skill is about inclusion, mm-hmm. open dialogue, and influence. So when we run inclusion training now, any of our development programs at any level the analysis and, and, and the familiarization always comes out with influence as a skill, which is, which is not related necessarily to inclusion as a topic, yeah. but you need to be able to influence it. And so to me, it's right back to school. And then, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody chooses HR as a profession, let's build that in. And at MS, you see at Marks and Spencer's back in the day, we were taught that. 
we were taught the hard way, you know, because we had to get on and and get be credible with with store managers and earn our way through. But and I think there's a softer way of doing it, quite frankly. But yeah. we need to get people, you know, and, and Annette is, you know, she's a lot younger than me, but Annette trained at Ford and had a very similar experience of, you know, get on and deal with it. And if if you mess up, sort it out for yourself. But I don't think that's the way. But I do think we don't give our HR professionals sufficient influence and commercial acumen at that junior level to go in and start influencing yeah. in business. Mm-hmm. And this generation yeah. wants it. They're hungry for it. They're desperate mm-hmm. for it. They will leave if they're not given it. So we've got a great opportunity. Great opportunity. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think your point, the two points you made that really just resonated with me as well was this point you made earlier about enabling, uh, being an enabling function. Couldn't yeah. agree more. But I think you have to take it in the context, as you said later, which is that doesn't mean saying yes. It doesn't mean shying away from difficult conversations. In fact, to be an enabling function, we have to have difficult conversations. We have to be able to lean in when others won't and have that have that uh, that say. So I think it's really important how that brings that comes together. Can I, can I just bring us back round, if that's okay, to your earlier conversations around some of the big key themes, et cetera. I mean, clearly DNI is front and center on so many agendas right now for Black Lives Matters, et cetera, coming through. You know, and, and who could have predicted that movement occurring on the back of COVID so quickly? And, and just as you say, the pressure that's mounted on organizations to address and do the right thing. That must have, has that changed significantly the dynamic of the conversations you're having with businesses or has it just brought it further to the front? It's really interesting. It's really interesting and varied because we work a lot across a very broad client space. And I'm, you know, I'm working with some clients who've gone public and produced the most amazing level of commitments right up to lobbying government around putting anti-racism into education, which is a conversation we had together about their CEO making that commitment, which is phenomenal. And I'm talking to, you know, HR and leadership colleagues who are saying, I'm just sick of having the conversation about whether anti-racism is right or wrong, because people just don't understand what Black Lives Matter is all about. A lot of people do, and, and, and but a number of people don't. And there's a real need to, to self-educate here. And so I'm going to go out on a limb and probably lose half my client base. Well, I won't, because they're all fabulous people. But I do feel there is a real need at CEO and HR director level, if you're in a big business or a small business, to self-educate around world events and things that affect the society that you work in and that you depend on to fuel your business. And I think, I honestly feel that should go as far as, should we not be testing the credibility and the level of appetite at CEO level to really truly understand this this and many other issues. So I don't get people telling me, well, we're not getting involved because we don't get involved in politics. Anti-racism is not a political issue. It's simply wrong and needs to stop. It's a societal issue that we all have to take responsibility for. And that's where you'll get me on my soapbox. But that's my insight coming back to you in terms of the ask uh, from yourselves is the variance in terms of not only level of awareness and knowledge, but appetite to acquire that awareness and knowledge is immense. And I think that's something that we probably need to be influencing really quite strongly. And if I was in politics, if I didn't need to earn a living, if I didn't run a business, I'd be shouting probably quite a lot louder about that. And and maybe that's something that HR professionals, girls should think about talking to government about. How do we ensure that we change 
the makeup of our uh, CEOs and our, and our C-suites across the footsies because it's not going to change if we don't actually say, as well as being able to run a business well, you need to understand society well and you need to be able to modernise and become an, inc- an inclusive organisation, else actually functioning economically in our country is not acceptable to us anymore. Okay, I know how passionate you are about this and I equally am and I'm absolutely with you. This is about doing the right thing. It's just, I mean, it's just sort of a no-brainer for me, but yeah, the point you're making about you know, people understanding world events, what's going on behind it, actually, for me, links to commerciality as well. Yes. Because you've got to understand your customers, wherever they are in the world. You've got to understand what's affecting your customers. Yeah. But your customers are also, you've got to understand your employees as well and what's affecting them and these different events, etc. And you've got to be able to be agile enough to put yourself in different people's shoes. Yeah. But also maybe to just have a good look in the mirror and challenge yourself on some of those and your organization's approach on things. And I think that takes courage. We haven't talked about courage, mm-hmm. but I think it's underlying it, which is if you're going to step in other people's shoes, if you're going to speak up and out, the colleague you spoke about, the contact you spoke about that spoke to the CEO, spot on, but that took courage. And I think that's something else we can really help people develop. It's about trust, isn't it? It's about encouraging them to speak out. It's about listening to them. It's about not, it's about respecting them speaking out. And I think that probably also needs to start with education as well. Yeah, it's education. And it's also, it's, as you touched on there, it's about, it's about culture. Yeah. And creating that trust in culture and just listening to you speak there, Annette, I'm thinking back as to how many conversations over the years I've had with organisations that say, I just don't understand why this disabled person didn't tell me about their disability. You know, it's on our application form that they can tell us if they've got one. Of course, we've never asked them since, um, but they didn't tell us then. And actually, Black Lives Matter and anti-racism, I'm seeing a very similar trend of, you know, well, we asked our you know, our colleague network if they wanted us to do something about it, and they didn't say anything, so we haven't. But for me, it's so we asked them again, and we explore why, and we explore their thinking, and we explore the impact on them as individuals. And I think in very busy lives, and that's the other thing with HR professionals at the moment, they're so stretched so thinly, that thinking time goes and reflection time goes. And all of these issues we're talking about now seriously require thinking and reflection. If we're going to do it well, there can't just be an off the hoof, tick the box, I've got that job done approach. So I don't know if that reflects, but with the disability analogy with Black Lives Matter, if I may, we've made, as you know, significant impact on that journey mm-hmm. by creating that environment of trust and, and opening up that dialogue. And we need to be doing the same from an, from an anti-racism perspective as well. Yeah, totally agree. The, um, the point you make about thinking and reflection, I think it's just so key. I think we've seen a lot of organisations react quickly with platitudes and very simple sna- um, snippets of social media statements. And I think it's only what you say when you get to the point where you're willing to commit around what you're going to do with action that I think you should that, that people should be saying and talking about what they're doing. So there is actual tangible change that's happening. I, I'm assuming you see that quite a lot in terms of what you're doing with organizations. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's and it's the same across inclusion, really. It's, it's about moving beyond the good intentions. And I think that's one of the hard things around when we start talking about this debate. And, and for me, to judge is to discriminate on any level. So I don't judge somebody who doesn't get it. I don't judge somebody who doesn't understand and needs some support and hasn't got the lived experience to understand it fully and hasn't had the opportunities the three of us have probably been given to explore different cultures and societies and influences uh, over the period of our lives. Some people just simply simply haven't had that. Even if they're in their 60s, they simply haven't had that. So to judge that is wrong. And we have to have an approach of, you know, no blame, but education, encouragement and support. And the, the biggest step is around getting people to that page of, we understand your good intentions. We understand that what you've created more often than not, if it's not an inclusive culture, a paternalistic culture that's got a family feel to it that feels warm and looked after and cared for. And that was certainly the case for some of the big cultures in the insurance sector and is the case elsewhere with, you know, construction businesses that have grown up from family businesses, et cetera. That's not usually the most inclusive organisation because it creates a, a subtle hierarchy where it's uncomfortable to have a, a conversation about anything that other than positive loveliness because that's kind of the you know, the environment and culture that's that's been chosen. Where the difference happens, Aaron, as you're absolutely right, is where that organisation says, okay, despite the fact that we've had great intentions, we're not making any change here. Nothing's happening. So we fundamentally need to get in there and find out what's going on. And obviously, as you'll know, you know, one of my biggest roles in, in, in the Clear Company is that I, I run our audit practice where we have the absolute privilege of going in and actually diving in and finding out what's going on and there's lots of other people that do that and organizations that do it for themselves and that to me is my biggest tip on all of this is platitudes won't work having a go and setting some initiatives running and throwing a bit of money at it or a lot of money at it in many cases won't work what you need to understand is why hasn't change happened now so what needs to fundamentally shift to change it to move forward and that could be something really really huge and I mean, a, a, an example from one of the recruitment audits that Annette was involved in was when we did some small things like you had to make a business case to not advertise a job without flexible working as opposed to the other way around. And you had to make a business case to put previous experience required on a job advert. You actually had to make a case as to why that would be. And that was a, a huge cultural shift for the organisation's concerned but the difference it made in terms of the people coming into that organization was just phenomenal in like one year absolutely unreal we went from parents of and, and friends of and uncles and aunties of joining to this wide diverse population coming in which then gives you the next challenge of, of how to make sure they flourish too but yeah actions as the saying goes speak louder than words agreed Agreed. And Kate, I was in a, a, a webinar earlier this week, actually, where there was a huge debate about how do we move away from targets? Because they are not real in terms of what they achieve. People get too focused on, I, I want 30% of a certain group within the org without really changing the culture underneath. What sort of themes are you getting at the moment in the work you're doing about what are some people doing about, you know, we've talked about recruitment there and some of the changes you can make. 
But what are you know other organisations doing? Some real initiatives you're seeing around changing the culture rather than setting targets. Yeah, I mean that's a, it's a really interesting point of debate. I've always had personally, and I'm not speaking on behalf of my brand now, but my personal brand, I've always had a, a challenge around setting targets because I've just seen too many instances of the poor behaviours that brings out and the instant gain for the long-term loss. Um, and there's some very public mm-hmm. examples of that that I won't go into right now. What we're seeing increasingly and what we're certainly working with organisations on is, is is more of a kind of, you know, like a scorecard approach. So rather than a, 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 a target around uh, numbers, it's around interventions and influences and activities. So at leadership level, you know, what have you done to put yourself out there in terms of diverse groups? What have you? What events have you spoken at? What education have you given yourself? What learning have you acquired this month? What have you provided in terms of education and for your team? There's lots and lots of layers and lots of different things that you can do that will ultimately shift the dial. Where it goes wrong is trying to shift the dial before you do the rest. And then you get to the end of the year and you've not shifted the dial. You think, oh, dear, that didn't work. Then we'll try another initiative next year and set some new goals next year. Whereas actually, if we set goals along the line, so if we say, um, let me think from a performance management perspective, if we set goals around looking at the level of objectivity within our performance management process, if we set goals around removing bias from that and, and, and giving people permission to have those open conversations around that, and if we set, set goals around education within the performance management, if we set goals around spot checking it along the way, all of these different things, as well as some statistical evidence you know, about numbers going through. So it doesn't mean that at the end we go, oh, how many people did we promote who are women this year? Now, we might not have promoted that many more women in year one, but what we can see is a journey of change progressing. That means in year two, we're going to be seriously celebrating some stuff because we put the groundwork in. And what we're seeing more and more in organizations now is that they're putting those groundwork and they're celebrating those stages. They're celebrating, they're celebrating having National Inclusion Week celebrations, having never done it before. They're celebrating the number of hits on their internal website when they put something out around race that they didn't do before, you know, colleague engagement, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to just celebrating, oh, we've appointed another board woman and she happens to be black. Because I don't think it resonates particularly either. The other thing with these figures are, of course, we've got the same person showing up as a statistic everywhere. We can use the statistic, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, just oh, sorry, Aaron. No, so I was just going to say businesses are complex things. They take time to make change happen. And it is the small steps that make the difference. We, we know it when we're doing behavioral change with individuals, right? It's You don't sustain the behavioral change by making a big movement quickly and, and then walking away thinking it's done, right? You have to make the small changes. And it's the addition of those small changes that make it sustainable. And it's the same with a business. I love that analogy. I'm probably going to steal it. Yeah. I think I really like that. It works really well for me. It's so obvious, actually. I don't know why I've never thought like that before, but it's those individual small steps. And then suddenly you go, so-and-so is performing brilliantly now. And you think, actually, over the last 12 months, we've done you know A, B, C, D, and E. And, and then finally, you know X, Y, and Z occurs at the end of it. Just going back to targets briefly, it's a really complex discussion because clearly mm-hmm. there is you know, evidence of, you know, government reports and the 30% club and all of these kind of things where people sign up and say, we are going to do it. 
and they kind of mobile whether they achieve the actual goal or not it does create a mobilization mm-hmm. and where we see that mobilization that commitment and those charters being signed when we see underneath that well okay how are we going to do that then because culturally we need to do lots of different stuff to get there that's where you see the traction. It's the worst ones are when you get the CEO who goes, I'm going to make sure that one in two appointments over the next two years is a woman. And you're going to go, okay, that's great. And I'm going to achieve X percent of my board being black minority. Okay, just looking back at your stats the last two years, that means you're going to have to appoint one and a half black people to every executive position over the next two years, which might be unrealistic. So the thing with target setting is it works with the context of actions behind it and it works if, the, if, if they are realistically well thought through, demographically achievable goals. Agreed. Okay, I've, got, I've got a completely different area now, if you don't Okay, mind. no, that's fine. As difficult as the pandemic has been and how, you know, um, it has changed everybody's lives, I think, there is one for me, a, a, a positive, if, there's a, if it's okay to say that, that's come out of it, is the increased focus on mental and physical well-being. Uh-huh. And there are, the recognition that that is going to be, or hopefully the recognition, that is going to be a key employee asker going forward, support around that, but it's going to be a key thing for employers to integrate into their offering, whether people are in the office, at home, virtually, but not just to think about the individual, but to think about their family as well. What are you what are you seeing as evidence coming out so far about you know organizations starting to take this ethos and approach to well-being more seriously and integrating it into their business and people strategy? That's a very deep question. Sorry, I just have to ask. No, it's fine. It's a deep and relevant one. I mean, as you know, I I have a disability myself. I'm registered partially sighted and I have a a condition which is systemic lupus, which means that I have to manage that fluctuating condition as well. And there are certain aspects of lockdown in particular that I find quite tough. Um, So I can resonate with it. I'm also, as you know, a disability advisor at at government level. So I've been quite active in this and I'm actually on the COVID-19 disability recovery panel with civil service at the moment so we've had some very interesting debates let me tell you the one thing that i would say is that there is a huge movement by organizations around putting in place robust mechanisms for mental and physical health that they haven't had before the challenge is that some of these are responding to a temporary situation and they need to be responding now to a, a permanent change in workforce um and for some people with a mental or physical disability, COVID-19 has been a very positive change. So I've got colleagues who are blind, for example, who are finding it re- a real relaxation, not tough to go on public transport, not tough to have noise pollution when they're working. I've got colleagues who are deaf or hard of hearing, which has been hugely empowering using Microsoft Teams, which has encrypted captions, all of that kind of stuff, absolutely immense. People who have anxiety, who don't have to manage that anxiety traveling into work, great. For other people, it's been hugely debilitating. And that's the message that I've been given, actually, when we've been on these government forums is the diversity within disability is absolutely huge. And what organizations need to be looking at is a policy that addresses that individual element across their well-being strategies. And what they need to be doing is, is essentially, Annette, what you did at Lloyd's, which is 
We need to stop singling people out and saying, could you put your hand up if you've got a disability or you need your adjustment? We need to be asking every single colleague, every single opportunity, what can we do? What's the impact of what we're doing? How can we address that for you? And that's where people are making that tangible difference by actually asking those questions. And that's where we're getting the learning. And we're getting the learning about people joining a Zoom or, or Teams meeting and finding that really intimidating because their communication style, if they have Asperger's, for example, they can't interrupt and people interrupt. On. The overall message is it is deep. But if there's anything positive coming out of COVID, and there's actually a number of things, because let's hope we come out into a better world, then the focus on mental health and I think the experience of the impact on mental health by senior leaders who've been taken out of their comfort zone into working at home and therefore recognising that for their colleagues as well is a huge surge of movement that we've got to keep momentum behind. Well, I think as well it's going to be not just a requirement of employers, it's going to be an, an absolute must if people are going to attract and retain the talent because people will choose who they work for depending on the offering and support available going forward. I'm hearing it already from people, which is I'm just biding my time because I don't feel I'm being supported to the degree I need to be supported. Yes. And as when the economy picks up a bit, I'm moving. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. I'm hearing that too. I'm also hearing that the organisations who've got a, a fully articulated wellbeing strategy and they do listen and they do put emphasis on this and they put money behind it, get that back in 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 so many ways you know reduced sickness absence levels higher productivity we know all of this we've known it for decades and that is published on the hsc website these are facts that if we look after our people well it's a commercially sensible decision to make but if you're somebody and again it's like we're talking before about black lives matter and and, you know uh, social mobility and all of these different aspects and con- uh, concepts contexts within society if you haven't individually or as a whole exco ever experienced any of that so you've sailed through life and you've got on with it pretty well or if you have then you know you're of that generation maybe or that social situation where somebody else has picked it up and dealt with it for you then it's really hard to understand how if you're an, if you're a colleague and you're working really hard but you've got a young child who's unwell or a parent who's unwell or your mental health fluctuates. So one day you're brilliant and the next day you can't get yourself out of bed. How can you relate to that if you've not experienced it? Well, we have to educate. Mm-hmm. And going back to your, because you're on a bit of a theme here, Annette, because this comes back entirely to create an environment of trust. Yeah. yeah. Uh, trust, education, Going back, putting yourself in other people's shoes and create an environment when it's okay to talk about these things, which yeah. is the best piece. And I'm hearing that much more. I mean, I, I interview senior leaders a lot of the time and I've never, ever had so many senior leaders, not in this context, by the way, I'm not going on saying, hello, would you like to talk to me about your mental health? I'm going on talking to them, hello, we're talking about diversity and inclusion within your organisation, da, da, da. and they start talking about their own mental health. Mm-hmm. very openly it's become open parlance in the boardroom and i think that's long may that continue yeah, yeah. i think that's incredibly it's almost like again like we've we've leapfrogged time to make it more acceptable now than ever before to talk about it so if that's one positive that's come out of i know there's many others as well but i think 
definitely made a, a positive. Aaron's waving at me, which is code for, Annette, we need to bring things to a close today. It is, but I'd also just wanted to join in on the conversation because it's fun. I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. And I just wanted to add one other thought to both of you for that list of things from trust and, and et cetera you were talking about, which is, and I think this is part of why the posit- there is some positive aspects to what has happened with COVID around work, which is, I think it's opened up the whole thing around choice and flexibility. And that's a big aspect, right, is the fact that a lot of organisations are now recognising exactly as you said, Kate, you've got to talk to everybody. You've got to understand as as often as you can their circumstances. But now we've proven that people can work from home, that they can have flexibility. Therefore, there is a level of choice in the workplace there wasn't before. And that allows us to accommodate so many more of the variances that there are in the way which people want to engage and work and engage with their colleagues. I think that that for me is one of the big K aspects as well. So I just wanted to throw that into the mix, given the conversation. No, it's, I think it's entirely relevant. And just and I will close because I know that you want me to. But the other thing for HR professionals is, 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 as with everything else, don't make any assumptions. You will have colleagues who want to come back in. You'll have colleagues that don't want to come back in. And you'll have colleagues that want a mix of the two. And all three of those categories will need support. Yeah, excellent. Is the key. Thank you, Kate. Lovely to see you. And thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Really, really great. And as always, our podcast spotlight series, you can find it on all of your podcast channels. Just look up HR on the offensive or the HR Guild spotlight series uh, and you will find us there. And uh, thanks again, Kate. And we'll close out here.